Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker, and I'm back in my studio after three months in Asia, Singapore, where they actually executed a cannabis prisoner while I was away, and I wrote about it in Green State. Ooh, where else? Borneo. Yes, orangutans. Saw an orangutan face-to-face. That was pretty wild. Also, a troop of pygmy elephants at an eco-lodge that was favored by David Attenborough, no less. Some wild fungal activity out there, too. There's actually a mushroom that looks like SpongeBob SquarePants out in Borneo. And the resemblance is so uncanny that the individual credited with the find named the mushroom Spongiforma SquarePantsy. And that's a true story. And then from Borneo, I flew to London, England, and took a train over to the University of Exeter for a breaking convention, Europe's largest psychedelic research conference. I wrote about that in Lucid News. If you're interested, got nothing but praise for breaking convention and their willingness to operate outside of the norm in their own lane and to do it at a very high level. I got to kick it with Paul Stamets a little bit, Darren LeBaron, Mudu Baki, Acacia Lewis, Ash Ritter, and so many new friends over there. Shout out Amy Tolan. And then I jumped on a flight back to Kuala Lumpur with three nights consecutively, one in London, one in Dubai, and one in Kuala Lumpur. Picked up right where I left off in Thailand, participating in the legal cannabis market there. There's a green economy booming in Thailand since June 22nd, 2022. There are cannabis dispensaries everywhere. So meanwhile, in Singapore, they're executing cannabis entrepreneurs. And in Thailand, they're rewarding cannabis entrepreneurs for gainful enterprise. And then wrapped up the trip with a week in Korea and a week in Japan. I got recognized in Korea on the streets in Jeonju, a wonderful little town that's a cultural heritage village. So yeah, I could go on ad nauseum, got plenty to talk about, but it was quite a global enterprise. And today, we're getting after it with the founders of another global enterprise. We've got Mike Margolis and Jazz Kadosh of the newly unveiled Global Psychedelic Society. I'm elated that Micropreneur is a community partner in this incredible project. And I encourage all of you in our audience around the globe to check out your own local chapter of Psychedelic Society. And if there isn't one currently near you, there's no time like the present to get the ball rolling on starting one. This podcast is brought to you by MicroBoost Functional Mushroom Supplements. I had MicroBoost Mushroom Coffee and a couple of their Soft Gel, Lion's Mane, and Cordyceps capsules on deck with me the whole time I was overseas, and it's a brilliant strategy for boosting one's immune system and overall vitality which is the way I like to go about business, quite frankly. Boosted. Micro boost, baby. Without further ado, thank you for being here. Please consider rating and reviewing this podcast wherever you're listening. And let's get down to business. Kate Pasa Mufasa, Jazz Kadash, and Mike Margolis, welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. It's great to see both of you. How's everything in your worlds today? Great. Thanks, man. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, things are going good. Thanks. For context, I believe Mike is in San Diego right now, and Jazz is in Denver, Colorado. And Jazz, let's start off with you because there's so much going on in Colorado these days. And of course, with the changing regulatory landscape for all of us watching from afar, what is the psychedelic community like in Colorado these days? And what's the on the ground reality for people? You know, how has it shifted from a year ago this time? Mm. That's a difficult question to answer, truthfully. (laughs) But I would say the Colorado community is really represents, I think, what a classic community will 
do and um, how community kind of moves sometimes like family does. Lots of lots of tensions and lots of healing all at the same time. A lot of healing of transgenerational and transcultural trauma and things like that. And it's, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy being on the ground, being implicated in all of this. And I see a lot of people doing their, the best that they can. And nobody's perfect. You know, we're all humans at the end of the day. I think in many ways, the project that we're here to talk about today is kind of an answer to that. And that's the launching of the Global Psychedelic Society that both of you are involved with. So whoever wants to take this one, can you just give us an overview of the scope of this project and why you're launching this project right now? This is a project that has actually been very much in the works for years now. To date, it's been pretty quiet, right? The root of it was there's all these groups all around the world and all kinds of cities, these psychedelic societies that are organizing local events and local community. And the idea was, hey, all these different leaders of these organizations, let's connect them all together to share information and resources. And we've been having, actually since COVID started, uh, Zoom meetings among these different psychedelic society leaders for a few years now. But where we are now is that over the last few months, the whole project has really just ramped up to a whole other level. Um, you know, Jazz came on board about a year ago and, and really um, helped to get people even more engaged and build some value, shared values, started to create a starter kit to help people form new psychedelic societies. And the last few months in particular, even more folks have joined on board, like Marisa, who kind of set this whole thing up, uh, and Matt, and a lot of other people. Um, this whole team has sort of coalesced and the whole project is now taken on this whole other life. Um, and we have this whole campaign we're about to launch that's both a, a fundraising, but also an educational campaign about the importance of community and of these types of community groups. Um, we're going to gather these folks together physically in person for a GPS summit during the MAPS Psychedelic Science Conference next month in June. A lot of other projects. I'll uh, I'll pause there though because there's a lot a whole lot to say. <laughs> um, but in a high level nutshell, that's sort of a you know where kind of where we've been and kind of where we are now, where we're going. I mean that's it. It's really beautiful um, seeing this global society coming together um, and really expanding. You know when Mike really started bringing us together during the pandemic, it was during a time where so many people felt isolated and that was the most connected I ever felt with the international psychedelic community. At the time I was running the Montreal Psychedelic Society, that's where I was living. Um, and it was just really nice to experience, you know, what it's like to uh, actually connect with other psychedelic society leaders from around the world. And now we're really expanding that offering and really bringing more and more of these leaders together under this GPS umbrella um, and providing a lot of resources to these community builders and, and leaders. Totally. You know, that's kind of the whole premise of the podcast when I launched it is there's so many awesome mushroom entrepreneurs all over the planet. And I noticed a lot of people were working in silos or in pockets, right? And the idea was like, wow, there's this really cool group of mushroom entrepreneurs in Bangalore, India, connect them to people that I know. And, you know, people can share resources and that was kind of the whole idea is that I personally benefit a lot from being embedded in a community rather than being, you know, an independent actor. And I suppose the same is true for a lot of organizations who have similar values and missions and reasons for assembling. And I'd love to ask what got both of you 
interested in psychedelics and leadership position, no less. You know, it takes a special breed to get attracted to a project like this and to have been working on it for a number of years at this point. So can you just give us a little bit of a sort of context and background for how you came to the work that you're doing right now? My psychedelic origin story, <laughs> if you will. Um, you know, I, I was, I used to be more a, a good model citizen <laughs> and I was, I was working for uh, ExxonMobil, as it turns out, <laughs> as a chemical engineer. Um, and I did that for like five years, um, but, uh, you know, successful by many conventional measures, let's say, but I was not happy. And this, so, you know, I guess just over a decade ago was when I kind of took this trip to Peru um, and had myself a, a week and a half with some ayahuasca. And the, the message there was basically jump without the rope. Um, so my journey led me to, you know, quitting that whole version of myself, spending a lot of time on the road in India and Southeast Asia. Um, and when I returned uh, to the US, um, which, yeah, it, it's been... I guess I returned, it was late 2014 and early 2015. And I was sitting there thinking, well, what do I do now? I don't want to go back to the same kind of path I was on. The whole idea of jumping without the rope, right, was not was to go forward, not, not back. Um, and I started doing just, I was telling the story to a friend at the time of like, well, I don't know what to do. I want to do something I'm passionate about. And I'm telling him this whole story of my own journey with psychedelics and you know, he, he looks at me and says, well, it's pretty obvious what you're passionate about. Uh, and that's when I started psychedelic seminars in Baltimore. It was a, February 2015 was the first event I ever organized. And it was a, the first thing I did was, you know, I just got together a few people in a library room and then started organizing monthly events. And over time, that grew and the scope of my own work grew uh, along with the psychedelic movement kind of in parallel to that. Um, and, you know, as I, and as, as the scope of my work grew and I was leaving Baltimore or not and more involved in things not local, I, I handed over this community I had started building there and it became what's now Baltimore Psychedelic Society. And so that's just been and sort of like as I've traveled around, uh, I've spent a lot of time. Uh, yeah, each place I've spent time in helping people to create some of these psychedelic societies or supporting whatever ones already exist there. And um and it's been a, I mean, the reason, I guess, to answer your question more directly of like the why is um, when I first started it, it was, it was because it was what I needed, you know, especially in that place in time. If you, you know, things are different in California in 2023, but Baltimore 2015, you know, the idea of a public facing event about psychedelics was pretty unheard of. It was taboo, it was, and, and, which is why I did it. You know, I wanted to break that taboo. I wanted to make, create conditions where we could have more open and honest conversations about psychedelics. And lo and behold, here we are. Uh, but the work is far from over, arguably right now. Um, it's more important than ever as psychedelics are becoming more and more mainstreamed. We actually need this kind of community more than anything. And that's sort of what's really the engine now. I think a lot of people are seeing that. And that's why so many people are coming in, coming on board for this GPS project, because I think it's... Um, we're seeing like, yeah, it's great. Then, and and, and maybe Jess can speak to this more around like, you know, what we have in research and policy versus what we need. And maybe there's a good place transition to hand to you because you the way you frame this <laughs> is really good. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, uh, well, just real quick, you know, my story is I'm I'm a cultural and medical anthropologist. Um, 
I started off in cultural anthropology studying festivals and how festival like raves and, and festival culture emulates a ritual structure and a rite of passage in the traditional kind of sense of the term. Um, and so I never really did the corporate thing prior to entering psychedelics. I was born into it. Um, although I did get into, you know, I, I did end up working with uh, Maya Health, which is a software company uh, for psychedelic therapy. I've worked in politics and Every time I come back to working with community, um, my heart is singing and I, I'm the work that I'm doing is easier to do. And it, it, I feel less of an imposter. Um, you know, we all experience imposter syndrome in one way or another. But when I'm stepping into the role of, you know, co-director of the Global Psychedelic Society, I'm, I'm happy doing it. I'm doing a good job. People are telling me they're grateful for it. And so I just keep coming back to that um, as my primary source of, of, of purpose, truly. Um, but yeah, you know, just to speak to what Mike was just referring to, uh, you know, as an anthropologist, I've been studying uh, the Western world's relationship with psychedelics in modern day, you know, 20, the 2020s and, um, or tw I actually started in 2016. So, um, and I've been watching it develop over the past, you know, seven, eight years. And for the, you know, most part, we really had to focus on medicine um, and research to really change the cultural narrative to let people know that it's now okay to start doing psychedelics, right? And then we shifted into politics and we started decriminalizing. We started seeing that happen in 2019 and 2020 and so on. Um, but now I think, you know, there's, there's, there's not there's three prongs to this paradigm shift that we're seeing it's it's both medical um political and cultural and i would say that that psychedelic societies are really that third prong and the cornerstone of um changing the cultural narrative around psychedelics informing the people of uh how to safely use psychedelics you know Psychedelic societies are offering education, integration circles. They're offering so many uh, services to the people that really, you know, rather than changing things from the top down, uh, like medicine and politics do, uh, they're really changing things from the ground up, you know. That's such a wonderful way of framing it, because you on the ground in Colorado, as you previously referenced, have seen how difficult it can be to transition into this more accessible, broader recognition of psychedelics as the tools and medicines that they are, right? And I do think that's what's missing from our cultural dialogue in general at large in the world is that face-to-face -face healthy debate, you know, being in the same room together. It's really easy. And I write about this and study it a lot because my background's in media and media studies and also psychedelics. You know, it's something that radically changed my life when I was 17 years old. And I kind of went through my whole academic studies and professional life kind of as a closeted psychonaut, as a lot of us did, you know, like Mike was mentioning earlier, like it was inconceivable that I could publicly speak about this outside of very small circles. And, you know, my community in San Francisco at the time and whatnot. And I don't think anybody realized how quickly things were going to change once, once a few people started saying, I do psychedelics. I've had impactful experiences. And now here we are, and there's a global psychedelic society, you know, and the, this huge conference coming up in Denver and all these other things going on. And all of a sudden it's everywhere. So, you know, it hasn't been easy though. And I know you can fully appreciate that. And I feel like we're kind of out of the honeymoon phase of psychedelics, right? There's a period for like 
maybe 2019, 2020, et cetera, where all the press and everybody, it was like cool and trendy and like fuzzy. And now we're kind of in like the reality situation where it's like the, you know, the political angles and the, the disagreements between communities. So I do feel like being in the same room, having a uh, center of access that you can sort of pivot around and you can, you know, healthy debate is good. But when you don't have it in person and you don't have structure to it, the debate can so often collapse and the discourse can collapse. So I do think it's more important than ever that we have these kind of opportunities for people to engage each other in person, to learn in person, to build communities together. So with that note, let's loop back to the overarching vision of the GPS, the Global Psychedelic Society. And I'd love to hear about what does the rollout look like, right? You've been working on this for a few years. You're starting to go more public facing with it. By the time this episode drops, it'll be right around when there's sort of a, a more public announcement. What does the actual rollout of the Global Psychedelic Society look like? All right. Uh, yeah. So um, May 30th, which I think this episode will be out by the time that date hits, um, is kind of our launch date for for this campaign that we're working on. Um, and the campaign is, um, you know, as I was alluding to earlier, it's kind of simultaneously a fundraising, but also an educational campaign. Um, the two, the, there's these three prongs here that Jazz was mentioning, right? We've got the research, we've got the policy, and we've got the community. But so far, uh, most of what makes the headlines, right, is the research and is the policy. And there's great reason for that, right? The research has moved our culture forward and gotten us so far along to where we are now, where we can have some of these conversations. And of course, policy is really important. We want to end the, we want to end the drug war. We want to decriminalize, um, but there, this psychedelic society work has been, um, you know, these, I, I would think the psychedelic society leaders are sort of unsung heroes of the movement, building this community. But I think it's crucial, right? I, uh, and if, if we think about the vision, um, and yeah, I want to step back maybe before we're talking about the, the launch sequence, let's call it, but the vision itself, um, let's start with like, what is the future that we want for psychedelics, right? And one possible trajectory that we are on right now, one of the potential futures is one where, okay, we've got FDA approved psychedelics, um, but they're only available if you get the, you know, the patented molecules from the company that raised the investment to take through the trials. So you can get psychedelics, but only through this very particular type of container of psychedelic assisted therapy through these particular types of well-capitalized companies. Um, and while I am a supportive of psychedelic therapy as a modality, right, being accessible, I don't think I, that's not the, the future I want is not one where that's the exclusive way that people have access to psychedelics. We need other types of containers. We need community healing. We need all kinds of ways. And it's not always someone having a diagnosed mental illness uh, that can benefit from psychedelics. And, and even folks who do, you go to therapy, you still need community. You need community to integrate that experience. So even with both within the the medical therapeutic model that we're that is coming out, we need community. But also beyond that, we need community. And really, this having community, um, we see that as foundational to the to have to the entire psychedelic ecosystem being healthy. Um, and if you think, I mean, let's zoom out even further, right? Like it's great that we have these molecules that have shown really remarkable results in helping with trauma and depression, right? But the whole idea of psychedelic therapy 
is not is to treat not the um, symptoms but the root causes. And so, on an individual level, you can get past some of what we do typically, right? Giving someone pharmaceuticals that you take every single day, and a psychedelic therapy can hit a more root level on the individual to get to the the root cause of that PTSD or that depression. But zoom out and look at the the society as a whole. Let's look at why is there so much trauma? Why is there so much depression in the first place? And if we're just treating individual cases like individuals are in vacuums, uh, we're actually hitting on the systemic level the symptom and not the root cause. The root cause is deep, deep, deep systems that need community healing. And the only way that we're going to really... And let's look beyond psychedelics. There's so many things that we need to repair in the world. Um, look at all the, you know, all the war, all the economic uh, burdens that we have. It, the, the systems need to be dramatically transformed. And we have to do so much, so much deep, deep communal healing work. Um, so I, I don't see any way to make the world the, the magical, beautiful place it could be if it's not done in community. Right. And so that is the core driver of it. Um, and that's what we're here yeah. to help support, you know, and if, uh, I'll yeah, pause there. It was a lot. On a more... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think just on a more like tangible level of what it is that GPS is going to be doing, you know, with our rollout. Um, we have so many beautiful ideas and Mike is really the, the brain of those ideas is really the visionary of what GPS is going to become. And I'm much more of the executor of, of it. And we, we really um, work well together in those ways, but we have um, currently we're working on a starter kit um, for how to start your own psychedelic society or community, um, which gives kind of the information of like, do you want to be a nonprofit? What are the pros and cons of that? And if you do, then this is how you set up. What are the types of roles that you need as uh, as you create a, an organization or a psychedelic society? Um, what types of events like work really well for your community? What are ways that you can get funded so that you don't burn out? And then on that burnout piece, you know, we see a lot of these um, psychedelic society leaders doing all this work, um, often volunteer based, and we wonder, you know. What happens if these community organizers are have a full salary? Um, how much more can they give and how much more can they do for their communities if they are actually properly resourced and they don't have to go work at a coffee shop on the side in order to do the work that they really love? You know, so we're working on this. So this fundraiser, which is going to be launching today, the day of that uh, hopefully this uh, podcast comes out, um, so that um, society leaders from around the world can receive funding for the amazing work that they're doing. Um, that's the second item. We're also building a book tour circuits. So if somebody publishes a book, um, we're going to kind of set them up with different societies around a certain region and they can kind of, uh, you know, launch their book in different countries or different cities and things like that. Um, that's just kind of the beginning. We're a resource for psychedelic society leaders um, to tap into. We are here for the leaders of those communities. Um, and that's just the, 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 the top level. We have so many more ideas planned. <laughs> 
I can't wait to follow it all. And I kind of picked up on that relational dynamic between Mike and you, Jazz, about him sort of having the macro view and you being more detail oriented and, you know, execution focused. That's a really great dynamic. My wife and I have that dynamic very much. I would say my head's in the clouds. Hers is firm. You know, her feet are firmly planted and we can cover a lot of space that way. So, you know, at the heart of every community, of course, is people. It's like regular people. And I think in many ways, that's part of Psychedelic's current narrative is this breaking away from the stereotype that like, you know, for Mike living in OB, he's familiar with this, but like the barefoot hippie at the drum circle, which is, you know, I've been that person many times and there's a part of me that that's person. But now you see these, you know, people from drastically different walks of life, you know, older folks, right? Retired people, um, law enforcement, you know, all kinds of things you would never would have expected who are seeking out this knowledge and seeking out the community. So I would love to hear a little bit about, you know, some of the types of people that are involved in the psychedelic societies that you work with, you know, just to, to kind of showcase that it's really almost everybody, like people from every walk of life who have benefited from these tools and substances. So what are, you know, the sort of the demographics of your various uh, psychedelic societies you're involved with look like? Yeah, I think like you said, it's really diverse. There are so many people of Every, from every different walk of life, every generation that are coming and being are interested now in this. And, um, and this is precisely one of the reasons why psychedelic societies are important. Um, you know, we mentioned integration already, right? So people go and get therapy and they need to integrate. But of course, the other piece is preparation. And I would say preparation begins as soon as you're curious about psychedelics, right? And so this begs the question of, when somebody is curious about psychedelics, where do they go? And that is one of the big roles of a psychedelic society. And if to the extent that we have healthy psychedelic societies in cities around the world, right, that is that is the best place, I would say. If someone, you know, they read Michael Pollan's book, they want to know what to do next. They want to figure out what to do in practice. They want to know what type of way. Should I go to therapy? Should I go to something that's a more community healing? Maybe something's more appropriate for one person or another, right? You can go to a community of peers and you can find this out. And people, you know, because everyone coming is so diverse in their life experiences and in their journeys, um, not a, there isn't a one-size-fit-all solution. It might be psychedelic-assisted therapy in that, in that medical model, but it might be very, very different things. So that's, why, that's where psychedelic societies can help point people in the right direction, give them that foundational information to figure out, like, where do I go from here? Um, but it's, it's extremely diverse and it's, um, you know, because of things though, like the drug war, right? We have disrupted our connections to elders in a lot of ways. There are some elders that you can find still, but, um, psychedelics are not, we need integration because psychedelics aren't integrated. When you look at indigenous cultures that have psychedelic traditions that are still alive, right? They don't have to have an integration circle because it's it's all part of the culture and because we've had this long period disrupted of all the all the knowledge was really like shut down and put underground and so we we've lost the very the more natural organic emergent um elders and knowledge bases that we would have had had we not been disrupted like that and this is where psychedelic societies can fill in that gap and then hopefully over time right if you look in a few generations from now there will be elders that people will have in the, their grandmother is someone they'll be able to go to and say, Karima, okay, I'm curious to do some LSD. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> mm-hmm. And which is why we need psychedelic societies now more than ever, because 
this huge boom that we're seeing. And especially, you know, I see this in Colorado, for example. I, I work at a cafe that um, is really positive to psychedelic use. And people come in all the time being like, hey, can I buy mushrooms here? And it's like, no, but, you know, here's this, like, we're going to point you to a community center that offers a lot of these resources and teaches you how to grow your mushrooms, you know, like give you the power in your own hands. Um, and as this this movement is expanding, um, we need that type of community education all that much more, you know, and and just to get back to your question on like, who do we see in these organized in, in as members of different psychedelic societies is, you know, like Mike said, it's everybody. And what's so beautiful that I've seen in places like Portland and San Francisco and the UK is they've managed to take a look at their audiences and create a specific event for each particular, uh, you know, group of people. So you have like psychedelics in recovery, people who are recovering from substance use and still want to continue using psychedelics. Um, you have people that are using it for PTSD. Um, you have people that are using it for recreational purposes and like, what's the harm reduction that you need if you're going to Burning Man, right? Or if you're going to lightning in a bottle, like, what do you need to test your drugs? So many psychedelic societies are testing people's drugs. Um, and so really offering the full spectrum of educational resources for the community that's in front of them. And that, that's something that's also really interesting as being this global um, hub is we've really had to find that fine line between uh, tell, like, you know, providing sound advice of like, this is how to be a, a healthy psychedelic society. And also, you know, your community best and what people need in Ukraine um, or in Madrid is really different than what we need in Denver or, or, or Portland, right? The economic and the political landscape is so different. Um, and so it's really about uh, honoring and empowering these psychedelic society leaders to know their own communities best and, and serve them best, you know? Yeah, that's a, can, and I, I want to maybe add to that. It's just a really critical uh, point about how GPS itself is set up, right? Like all these psychedelic societies around the world, they aren't chapters of the GPS that we like own or control in any way. These are all independent running organizations. They all, and many of them sprung up, they sprung up pretty synchronously, like around the same time I was in Baltimore saying, oh, I think I need to organize psychedelic events. All these other people were starting like communities like it, like the Aware Project here in SoCal was emerging at the exact same moment and the Brooklyn Psychedelic Society. And it was something way back then that I noticed uh, you know, it's like we all kind of heard this call at the same time and answered it. And so what the GPS is doing is is helping really to just the, the beginning of it was just connecting these folks to, to share information and resources to not reinvent the wheel. And over time, we have um, we do have something of a, a central core to it. And, and we're, we're kind of balance, making that balance between a decentralized and a network and a kind of a centralized hub of it. So there's a there's a team in the core. Uh, and we see our role as how do we serve the psychedelic society leaders? Um, but it's really, as Jazz said, right, every single place is different. Every place is a different political landscape. So um, our, our MO is not to impose any of our will on anyone and say, oh, yeah, you must do this. You must do that. This is what you must do. But uh, but we're here to give resources and tell show people what others are doing, figure out some best practices and just uh, take all this knowledge and bring it together together. 
uh, to empower people wherever they are to figure out how to fit it to form for their particular community. Um, and that's sort of the MO of the whole project, right? Is like, and, and there's so many, as Jazz was alluding earlier, we've got a lot of things in the work, like we wanna build tour circuits for authors and filmmakers and, and what have you to plug into local communities, mentorship programs for, for older and more experienced psychedelic society leaders to help newer ones. Um, there's so many different things. And after the, uh, the GPS summit that we're doing at uh, MAPS conference in June, I think plenty more projects are going to emerge from that too. Um, but yeah, that's what we're here for is to support all these folks around the world. Totally. Now, Mike, earlier you spoke about how you started the, what eventually became the Baltimore Psychedelic Society because it was what you needed at that time. And Jazz obviously has reasons for why she got started, which she, she went into a little bit. But what I want to know about is how you've positively changed since your initiation and involvement with being involved in a psychedelic society, right? It's a, maybe more specific granular ways that your life has changed for the positive. Because I'm one of those people who has never belonged to a psychedelic society. You know, I have my little pockets. I have my, my bands and stuff that I'm around where psychedelics are part of the artistic scene, if you will. But like the the notion of joining an organized community, especially now, is quite appealing for a lot of reasons. So like, what are some of the you know positive changes you've seen in both of your lives since first getting involved with the Psychedelic Society? Yeah, actually, uh, Marisa Sturz, who's on our board, uh, really spoke to this really beautifully. You know, she, she spoke about how for so long she was, she was using psychedelics to really like treat some trauma that she didn't even know was there. She was using it recreationally. Um, and I may be butchering her story and I'll do my best to, to reiterate it. But she said once she found psychedelic community, um, it was that community that really taught her like, hey, you know, you may be missing these pieces that are coming up during your psychedelic experience and like, um, here's a way that you can actually integrate that into your day to day and really provided her with those tools um, to make sense of what was going on that she didn't have before because she was operating in a really isolated silo. Uh, but as soon as she came to a community uh, where she can actually talk about what she was experiencing with the people who are in her same town and maybe of a similar demographic or something like that, then it, things started to make sense a whole lot more. And she started to learn how to utilize these medicines um, to actually uh, to actually treat her trauma, even in community, not necessarily in like a therapeutic, like uh, guide guided session per se. But um, yeah, that's something that Marisa has been talking about a lot. And Mike, I'm not sure if you you have anything that you want to add to that. Oh man, I I mean, my whole life changed since starting to publicly be part of this psychedelic movement. So it's like every single thing. I mean, the whole reason I'm in California now, right? It was, it was like I, I was following this journey that has unfolded before me, right? So, uh, as I, I first went to the Bay several years ago, because like that was an epicenter of the movement. And that's how I ended up here in the first place. And, um, and, and now in San Diego. And it's all, I think maybe... Um, I mean, for me, if you're asking on like a personal level, how has this choice affected me? Like, um, I think it was like the choice to really be authentic more than anything else. Right. And like, you know, as I was saying, I was, I had to come, I was coming out of the psychedelic closet and that I'm, you know, borrowing some words from Daniel Jabor, who started the very first psychedelic society in San Francisco. Um, and 
in many ways, I feel like my work in the GPS is following in his footsteps. And he had a great article published just shortly after he passed in the Maps Bulletin that was calling on people to start these psychedelic societies. Um, and very early on, it was uh, I, before I got involved, something that influenced me was uh, a talk he gave at Burning Man about coming out of the psychedelic closet. And that so much has informed what I've, doing, uh, what I've done. And by doing that, by I had a whole part of myself. Um, you know, when I was working at Exxon and I, I was, you know, I was doing psychedelics, I was going to music festivals, doing all this. But when I came to work on Monday morning, uh, you know, my colleague asked him how my weekend was. I, I didn't share about my life changing candy flipping experience. You know, um, there were really significant aspects of myself that were suppressed. But once I started to be more true and authentic, um, I, I've been continuously over these years stepping more and more and more into my most authentic, fully expressed version of myself. Um, and that's part of like being here in OB and people know what OB is. OB is Ocean Beach, San Diego. Um, and it's this beautiful place. I live right by that drum circle you were talking about. It's right outside my window here. Uh, um, and it's, it's great. And I'm, you know, and now I'm, per I'm performing music almost weekly at the open mics, you know, it's, and so it's not just in the psychedelic domain, but in every domain of my life, I'm stepping into my truest self. Um, so that's where I've been, I, I think most transformed, I would say. And just following this journey, it's taken me places I couldn't have predicted. And even with the GPS as a meta example here, the way that this team has just sort of formed, it's, it's almost like I'm, and I was watching this thing unfold and it's been, which has been a profound thing for me to experience. I've never really experienced something quite like what's happening here. Totally right on. Yeah. I used to work at kind of the epicenter of hippie hostels right on Newport Avenue in Ocean Beach years ago. It was a zoo. It was like a Grateful Dead scene there. It was quite a time. That was in two, 2013, a different world for sure. But I'm, a, you know, originally from San Diego, from the border community of, you know, Southern Chula Vista. So I have a lot of love for San Diego and especially the, the California burritos that they have out in OB, as I'm sure you're familiar with those. So one thing I'd love to kind of talk about as we start to wrap up here is about how you mediate between conflicts in a community, because it's something that is unavoidable in the psychedelic space. And I think right now our world is so heavily polarized, politicized, it's so obvious, and that can't help but be mapped onto the psychedelic community, because as you touched on, there's so many deep issues, you know, not symptoms, but like not surface level symptoms, but deep, complex issues that need to be addressed. And at the end of the day, you're all you're very often going to have divergent perspectives. And one of my interests in trying to contribute to the space is to create better forums for conflict resolution, because right now, you know, so many people trying to solve issues that they have that are really deep seated issues, especially when you're doing it online and on social media. They actually those platforms tend to isolate, exacerbate, you know, and amplify the issues rather than lead to meaningful conflict resolution. And Jazz started off the episode, I hit her with a hard question right off the bat about, you know, being on the ground in Colorado. As a former high school teacher, I can say you can't keep everybody happy all the time. That's just the nature of the beast. Like you can try to do the most good for the most people, but you're always going to have conflicts. And I think we're going to see that, especially as the political rhetoric starts to ramp up in the next U.S. election cycle. So I'm interested in trying to explore 
more effective forums and containers for conflict resolution. And I think it's something we should center just in general in the psychedelic community. What are some ways when you're a part of a community and you're in a leadership position and there's a strong difference of opinion in a conflict, what are some of the best practices that you employ to go about helping to mediate or to find conflict resolution there? Yeah, it's hmm. a great question. <laughs> you want me or you first, Jazz, on this one? <laughs> I'll just real quick, and then you can take it, is just say, at the end of the day, we're, we're still dealing with humans, you know? And, you know, uh, I've heard a lot of people say, like, oh, if only there was this, you know, medicine we can take that would make everybody see love and beauty and, like, imagine that thing existed and and maybe we can just take it and we wouldn't fight anymore and well funny enough like we are literally working with those medicines and we yet we still find ourselves in these conflicts and i think it's really important to name that we haven't we haven't bypassed like we haven't surpassed um you know the human experience just because we're taking psychedelics we continuously find ourselves with people who um actually the psychedelics are just amplifying their narcissism right um they're non-specific amplifiers as stan groff says and so at the end of the day we're still dealing with humans that that have a lot of trauma and that have a lot of pain and we're also dealing with indigenous medicines that have been uh, taken away from indigenous people and misappropriated and um, there's so much complex and nuanced issues involved in being part of the psychedelic movement that i just want to say like of course we were we are going to have conflict number one and then on how do we handle that my answer is I try my best to just always lead with love. Um, it's really hard to do, and I've been tested dearly on how much do you really believe that love is the revolution here? And many times I, I, I almost abandoned it, you know, because of these conflicts. But um, on a more strategic level, um, I'm gonna hand that over to, to Mike because it sounds like you had some more ideas, but I just wanna name that one thing of, of course we are going to have conflict. Yeah, and I to I totally agree and will echo that. I, I don't think we're ever going to get away from conflict. So the, and the goal is not to not have conflict. Actually, conflict can be healthy. Um, the goal is to, I think we can change how we have conflict, though, right? Um, and while I don't have all the answers, there are models that exist, like transformative and restorative justice as, as one way. But in many ways, we're still like figuring this out. Um, transformative justice models are not currently very ubiquitous and they're not easy to do. They take a lot of time and energy and, um, and honestly, we don't resource them. And we have a whole system that we're working within that is predicated on punitive approaches to conflict. And I think that is itself uh, counterproductive and it's create this is part of what we were talking before about the systems that need to change this is one of the meta systems that needs to change itself is how do we go from punitive based models that just create more trauma create more harm how do we address harm without causing more harm and that's one of the principles of transformative justice and i don't want to present like i'm an expert in it but that's one of the models that i look to um at, for a kind of a path forward and i think um yeah it's we can't just cancel everybody that we disagree with, right? Um, we have to actually engage with each other. Now, it's not to say, and I want to clarify that comment too, right? There are definitely scenarios where somebody who's caused harm maybe is not appropriate to be in certain 
leadership positions while they're on wherever they are in their process. And sometimes the answer is, you know, maybe a call out, so to speak, um, could be appropriate. Um, but to me, it's there, there's some shifts that need to happen in how we do it. I think oftentimes, oftentimes, um, you know, things we call we, we talk about in call out culture. It's it's more about there, there's an energy of, you know, I want to punish this person. Uh, this person's bad, and um, it is sometimes important to name, uh, you know, bad actors in community, people causing harm. Um, but coming from a spirit of harm reduction, right? Are we really coming from a place of like, hey, the reason we are letting community know about this is because this person is harmful and we just need people to have this information to make good decisions. Um, so it has to do with what is the motivation behind our actions? Are we trying to punish? Are we trying to heal? And yes, sometimes um, publicly naming harm is important. Yes, sometimes withdrawing support, decentering, deplatforming, that those are all tools in the arsenal. Um, but also I would say those should be last resort tools, right? Those are, those shouldn't be the first thing we do when there's conflict. The first thing we can do is let's have one-on-one -on -one conversations or all the way up through, uh, having, creating pods and doing a full transformative justice and restorative justice process. Again, that's, these aren't models that we know very well yet and that are resourced enough yet, but directionally, that's what I would say is the direction we would need to go. Um, and it's not easy. It, 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 this is a, this is a whole other like can of worms of a topic, but that would be some of my answer. <laughs> totally. I appreciate it. Y'all are pros. You know, I don't always like to toss all the softballs because I think these are the questions that we're going to need to grapple with and answer. And sort of my answer to that question is again, to focus on diplomacy, centering diplomacy. I think we've lost the edge of diplomacy and nuance to a lot of these conversations. And, you know, I was on the first wave of social media and studied a lot of that and I remember seeing when, you know, Facebook came out and Twitter came out thinking, oh, good, this is going to connect everyone. You know, finally, we have the answer to no, it actually, you know, arguably did quite a bit of the opposite. And it siloed people off and further entrenched people into their own ideologies and whatnot. So I think we're coming up to a point, especially as leaders in a psychedelic space or people involved in projects like we have to be ready to take on very difficult topics. And, and yeah, so, you know, I don't think there's an easy answer, but I do think that we can create better public forums for debate and for healthy debate, right? And I think that in-person community is always better. Whenever I have an issue that comes up with someone, the first thing I do is try to leave them a voice note, you know, or try to like get get on the phone with them as opposed to like sending messages back and forth or whatnot. And I think we need to establish rapport with people who are different than us and to learn how to foster empathy for that too. And what better place to do those things than to start taking on these, you know, generational challenges than in person at a psychedelic society and the more you know you get to learn from people from other cultures and see what they're doing in barcelona and what they're doing and you know new york city or whatever the more that you can build that empathy you can bridge that empathy gap in my opinion so let's wrap up here with the call to action folks are here they're super interested in being a part of this they want to support there's you know all kinds of people who want to come out and support this you know financially or with their time and with resources, et cetera. What's the call to action? How can people get involved with GPS? Check out globalpsychedelic.org. And um, the first thing actually resource for you, the listener, is we have a map on our site that we're maintaining, right? Where you can find whatever your local psychedelic society or some cities have multiple. Check out the map on our site, find your local group, get engaged with them. And if you like what we're saying here, 
please do consider supporting the efforts we're doing at GPS as well as in your local community. We, by the time this airs, the fundraiser is going to be live, um, and the link to all of that is going to be on our site at globalpsychedelic.org. Um, and anything helps, and, and whether it's financial or otherwise, there's a lot of ways that you know maybe just amplify the message, put it on your social media. Um, we're open to other forms of collaboration too. If you, if anything that we're saying here, you know, is inspiring you and you want to reach out and collaborate, uh, reach out to us info at globalpsychedelic.org. There's, so there's so many ways to support, you know, get resources for yourselves through what we're doing. And also if you really want to support us to support these community builders, a lot of ways for that too. And we, we love to collaborate. We'd love to get everyone we can, uh, involved in, in the game. Don't have anything to add. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we nailed it. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. Mike and Jazz from the Global Psychedelic Society. I'll see you shortly in Colorado and looking forward to you know unpacking all this in person and congratulations on all the epic work you've been doing and best wishes for the launch and all that. And I'm very honored that you would have thought to come on the Micopreneur podcast and, and join me today. So thanks again. Have a lovely afternoon. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. <laughs> and that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, micopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Michael Preneur Podcast.